0: Now turn in your copy of God's word to First Peter chapter 2. First uh, Peter chapter two, we'll actually uh, look this morning at verses 18 to 25. Let me ask if you are able, uh, let's stand as we read God's word together. Uh, Servants be subject to your masters with all respect For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would be at work. Would you teach us? Would you grow us? Uh, Grow us in our love for and understanding of, knowledge of your word, but more importantly, uh, that we would die to sin and live to righteousness, uh, even as we read in this passage that you would use this, your word, to root out sin and to grow us in holiness. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So, to state the obvious, um, the gospel is supposed to impact our lives. I know that may be sort of, again, stating the obvious. That may be sort of, kind of getting out and saying the the very obvious thing there is to say. But the gospel is supposed to impact every aspect of our lives. There are those, of course, who kind of do the just me and Jesus thing. Uh, There are those who contend that really the, the gospel or that my salvation or that the Bible is really just about my relationship with God and really not doesn't have anything to do with any of y'all and it's really none of your business. And yet, you can read throughout Scripture all the places where the one another passages, for example. uh, What's the point of all the one another passages if the Gospel isn't supposed to impact every aspect of our lives? And we see in this passage, even that, that the Gospel affects, it impacts our work. That our salvation isn't just a get-out-of-hell-free card. That our understanding of Scripture doesn't simply free our souls from the danger and and punishment of of eternity in hell, but it actually does more than that. The Bible, the Gospel is for the whole person. Not just for my souls. It's supposed to affect the way we work, the way we play, the way we interact with our neighbors, the way we do everything that we do. And this morning, Peter turns his attention to a subject that makes us probably more than a little bit uncomfortable probably more than a little bit nervous. I mean, he's already, he's already addressed the Christian's relationship to the government, to, those, to our civil authorities, and he continues and is actually going to continue. Maybe the next passage is the only other passage in this book that, that causes us more angst than this one. But he's continuing to sort of unpack for us, unfold for us, verse 13. Be subject to the Lord, uh, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. And he turns this morning to the institution of slavery. Notice in verse 18, he says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Now, for what it's worth, there are several... Greek words for slave. He doesn't use the sort of standard slave word. It's a more generic household servant kind of a word. Um, so it's it's it, it has a little bit of a different connotation, and yet it doesn't really matter. We read the word servant, and we get really really uncomfortable. So I want to take just a couple of minutes. And, and settle some of those conflicts, because this has impact on how we read and understand the Bible. So slavery in the first century in the Roman world was a way of life, but it was different from what you and I know of as slavery. It's different from chattel slavery, for one thing, there are actually several ways you could end up as a slave. You, you may owe somebody money, a debt you can't pay, and you sort of indenture yourself as a servant to pay off that debt. Or um, your your people were conquered in war. There are all sorts of ways to end up as a servant in the first century Roman world. And generally speaking, they were treated better than than the slaves of the Old South were treated, for one thing, they, they could live normal, comfortable lives. They got paid for their work. And for that matter, their work could be anything from manual labor labor to doctor to teacher, all sorts of things. Except they weren't free. They could buy their freedom. I mean they got paid for their work. They could save up their money and eventually, hopefully maybe pay for their freedom but they weren't inherently free something interesting about scripture is the bible never actually openly instruct slaves servants to rebel you you might be tempted to think well i would expect to see that i mean if something so heinous as the kind of slavery we know from our past just a few hundred years ago. It seems like if that were the case, that somewhere along the way, the Bible would tell that God would tell servant slaves, look, this is a horrible system. You have to rise up. You have to revolt against it. You have to rebel against it. The Bible never actually does that. And it doesn't openly condemn slavery and it doesn't Openly support slavery. Typically when it speaks of the system, what we might call the human institution, to steal Peter's language of verse 13, when it speaks of that human institution of servanthood, of slavery, it does so on the individual labor lab, level. It speaks to the servant or it speaks to the master. It rarely speaks to the system as a system. This has implications for us. Not exactly directly related to this passage, but connected because it's dealing with a subject that we don't really know how to deal with, how to interact with. It has implications for us for how we read and understand our Bibles. Let me just make two sort of observations right from the start. The first is this. Many of us are in the habit of what we might call proof texting. We're looking for a verse that mentions a word or a concept or a phrase, and we just use that verse sort of blindly and pull it out of its context and use it to either support or to denounce some um, activity or some event or some institution. Uh, it's, we don't get to decide just because, for example, an Old Testament narrative mentions an event or an activity That doesn't mean that that event or that activity is for us to model. Take, for example, Gideon and his fleece. We read in Judges um, 6-9, I think it is, about um, Gideon laying out his fleece to test God. 6, it's 6. But the Bible doesn't approve it and it doesn't condemn it. It's not necessarily the case that we're supposed to go, well, I'm going to start laying out a fleece to test God because Gideon did. And so therefore it's okay. The Bible does tell us not to put the Lord your God to the test. In fact, Jesus quoted that right back at Satan in Luke 4. But you think about how many people will go, well, Gideon laid out a fleece. I can lay out a fleece and test God. Just because the Bible mentions slavery, it doesn't mean slavery is good or right. Just because the Bible talks about servants doesn't mean that the system as a system is a good and right system. The second thing this shows us about reading and understanding our Bibles is that putting together a system of doctrine is helpful. We're in we're in the PCA. We have a system of doctrine that we call the Westminster Confession of Faith and the shorter and larger catechisms. They were put together for us, really, in 1643. We've made some changes. We've made some edits here or there, taken out some stuff about the Pope being the Antichrist. But it's still, that's our system of doctrine. Having a system of doctrine is helpful for us. By the way, the word doctrine simply means teaching. If, if you believe the Bible teaches anything, you believe doctrine. So don't run and hide and shy away from the word. It's not a bad word. But the point is, the reason we've outlawed slavery and Christians led the way in that, especially in British Parliament is because they had a system of doctrine that said all men are created in the image of God and bear that image in this world regardless of skin color, height, weight, age. You can fill in whatever blank. And so Peter calls us, tells, instructs, commands, Servants to be subject to their masters. Uh, we have, as a system, outlawed uh, chattel slavery as um, very much outside the 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 accurate teaching of Scripture. So, how then does this passage? What does it have to do with us? Why bother reading it? Why skipping it? For that matter, why does Peter include it? Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, include a passage to servants in relation to their masters. Why bother having it if the system is going to be removed? Because he's urging us, reminding us, that we all work for somebody that everybody has someone over them and we're all called to work for them and for their good what if they're mean what if they're what if they're really not nice what if our what if our boss really isn't above board even for that matter Notice the way Peter writes verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. That word unjust, if you're using an NIV, if you're using a New American Standard, I think it says harsh there. Um, It really has more to do with being crooked and unscrupulous than being mean. In other words... They're really not operating business even above board and in accordance with the law. And so Peter urges, commands servants to be subject to their masters with respect, whether they're good and nice and kind and gracious or whether they're even cooking the books a little bit. We say, "Well, I'm not a slave," but we do have employers. We have people above us. We have people over us who, um, for whom we work. And again, we're reminded that the Bible isn't just a get out of hell free card. The gospel isn't just a get out of hell free card. You know, this perhaps maybe more pervasive in in other circles where really all the big push is to get people to raise their hand or pray a prayer or walk an aisle and just to make sure that they're saved. And then after that, everything's fine and there's not a lot of uh, instruction on how to live our lives. And here, Peter says, look, you have masters, you have bosses, you have business owners you have people for whom you work and we're called to be subject to them the bible extends even to our work ethic and to the way we work and the way we uh, work for and respect the people that have hired us but you know some of them some of them are just kind of difficult to work for some of them are demanding, some of them are mean, some of them are harsh, and, and, it's just, and it's not fair for that matter. I mean, sometimes you get mistreated just because they feel like mistreating somebody. What then? Then how do I respond? Well, Look at verse 19. Peter tells us that it's actually a grace to us okay not a saving grace but it is a grace to us it is it is for our spiritual good it serves for our growth in grace when mindful of God because of God you suffer you endure sorrow while suffering unjustly i mean of course and and he he uses the language of course if you're if you're beaten if you're mistreated if if, if they're harsh to you, if your master is difficult to you because you are lazy and not doing your work and, and bad at what you do, then you deserve it. If you're, if you're in sin and rebelling against God and your boss, then then you deserve the, the difficult and harsh treatment, Peter says in verse 20. But what credit is it if if you suffer on account of your sin... What if instead you're doing good and suffer on account of your doing good? Peter actually tells us that's, that's actually a gracious gift from God. When was the last time you thought, I sure am thankful for that gracious gift of the mean, onerous, difficult Boss? Thank you, God, for giving me this person. Thank you, person, for treating me unfairly and unjustly. Thank you for getting on my case because I've done exactly what you told me to do. We don't think of it that way. And Peter says it's actually a gracious thing to us. In fact, he uses that language twice Verse 19 and in verse 20, the very beginning of 19, the end of 20. It's a gracious thing when, and then at the end, when you suffer and endure for doing good, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. He clearly wants us to know and understand that suffering for doing good, that suffering unjustly is actually evidence of God's grace to us see we 'd rather demand our rights we 'd rather and this is especially an American thing, right I have a right to this we 'll demand well, you owe me this or I have a right to that, and you can 't take it away we 'll demand our rights and and scream and, and kick and complain that everything 's unfair, and ultimately we 're shaking our fists even at Jesus himself in many ways. this passage fights against our 21st century American Christianity that expects ease and peace and comfort and that my rights trump your good. But that's not what this passage tells us. In fact, it turns our attention to Jesus. Peter points to Jesus as our model. He says basically, verse 21, you want a picture of suffering for doing good? Look at Jesus. He is, he is the model. He is the standout example and, and to follow because he of all people suffered and endured difficulty and trial for doing absolutely nothing wrong. Do you remember learning how to write your letters? When you were a kid and and you got that lined paper, you know, the paper with the lines and you had two solid lines and there was a dotted line in the middle of them. And and you had the big fat pencil and you were learning how to practice your letters and the two lines, you know, the the capital letters start at the bottom line. They got to touch that top line and the, the lowercase letters, well, they don't go above the dotted line, except for some of them. Like you got the, the 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 tail on the B that sticks up. Okay, it's got to go up there. The, the tail on the P has got to drop below. The, but the, generally speaking, the lowercase letters, right, had, you had the bottom half of that line. And, and usually like at the beginning of the line, there would, there would be a couple of A's. And, and you could trace the A in practice. And then the A stopped. And you had to figure out how to do it on your own. Can you, can you do it the rest of the line? There were three A's at the beginning and I traced them and I could do just fine. And then I got the rest of the line. That's the language Peter uses when he talks about Jesus as our example. He literally uses the word underwriting and puts them together. And it's, it's the same language as first century Roman students learning their letters. The three lines, the dotted line was in the middle. And they would trace and practice their letters. He's literally telling, follow Jesus as that example. He's the, the A's at the beginning of the line. You trace that. You keep following Jesus as your model. In fact, you follow in His steps, verse 21. And that, that word is footprints. It's, it's the, the image of walking on the beach and walking behind somebody and you putting your feet exactly where they put their feet. And people think one person walked here and in actuality it was four. But just everybody was stepping exactly where everybody else was stepping. That's exactly the, the image that Peter is using for us to follow the example of Christ and to walk and follow in his steps. And it just so happens that the path Jesus walked is a path that's shaped by the cross. We're called to live cross-shaped lives, cruciform lives in the world around us. Yielding our rights for the good of others. How is Jesus an example? Well, if if Jesus has left us an example, verse 21, so that we might follow in his steps, what does that look like? That's verses 22 and 23. Jesus suffered unjustly. He was reviled and he didn't revile back. He committed no sin. He did absolutely nothing wrong. There was no deceit in his mouth whatsoever. And he suffered. And when he suffered, he didn't lash out in anger. He didn't holler back out and threaten people. When the civil authorities, when his own people cried out, kill that guy, he could have killed those guys himself. And yet he endured suffering for doing absolutely nothing wrong, for doing exactly what he was called to do. When we cry out, I have rights, we aren't always acting like Jesus. We aren't following his example. Of course, Jesus is an example, but He's not only an example. He's not merely an example. He's not just an example. There are those out there who uh, will tell us, usually outside the church, um, perhaps some even inside the church, um, who will tell us really that the key to the Bible, that the key to Christianity is just just doing what Jesus, living like Jesus. The whole goal, I mean, sin... uh, I don't know, it's not really that bad. Cosmic treason, not so much. Jesus as the only way of salvation, well, that's not really what the Bible's about. What the Bible's really about is that you and I, because we're basically good, just need to learn to to live and to love the way Jesus lived and loved. There are even... So called churches out there that teach that as the heart of truth. But the catch is, Jesus, as an example, ends in verse 23. Verse 24 and 25 tell us what he was doing when he suffered unjustly. They tell us why he was here at all and what he was coming to accomplish and why he was reviled. But we don't follow the pattern of 24 and 25, at least not exactly. Because in verses 24 and 25, we realize that's right. Jesus was suffering because he was doing something I can't do. He was here to accomplish something I can't accomplish. Because of my sinful nature, because of my rebellion, because of my cosmic treason, I can't live and love like Jesus did. Instead, He bore our sins in His body on the tree. We've been healed by His wounds. His suffering accomplished our deliverance. His blood shed on the cross accomplished our healing. He suffered and bled and died so that we, we might in this life, but we won't in the life to come. He bore our sins, and because of that sin, we can't live in love like Jesus can. At least not until the end of verse 24 that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We can't follow Jesus' example without Him first being our Savior. Without first submitting to His authority and rule in our lives. And the order matters. We come to saving faith in Christ, die to sin, live to righteousness, that He might transform us to be more and more like Him, that we might more and more subject ourselves to our masters, even if they're unjust. Are you trusting in Jesus for your salvation? Are you submitting to His rule and reign in your life? Have you been healed by His wounds? If not, then turn in faith to Christ. Verses 24 and 25 are for you. Look to Christ. Turn in faith to Him. Repent of sin. Look to Him as your Savior. And you too die to sin. Live to righteousness. Be healed by His wounds, for He has reached out. Found the straying sheep. And brought you back. And may God grant us as his people. The grace to be subject to those in authority over us. To work to bring honor and glory to Christ. Even in the face of unjust masters. May we more and more represent Christ. To those over us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending your son uh, to live a holy and righteous and and altogether sinless life. And yet to suffer unjustly, uh, to be reviled uh, unjustly, that his suffering, that his death, his burial might accomplish our salvation. We pray that you would be at work in us, root out sin and selfishness in our lives, cause us uh, to be subject to those over us for the, for their good and for the honor and glory of Christ. And may in all of that, may Christ be exalted. Would you use our submission to bring unbelieving masters to saving faith in Christ? We pray all of this in his name and for his sake. Amen.